Church, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're continuing our study through the book of Revelation, coming now to verses 7 through 13 of chapter 3, the sixth of the seven letters, the letter that Jesus dictates through the Apostle John to the church in the city of Philadelphia. Have you ever felt small, powerless, like you're in a battle against an enemy that is far more formidable, formidable than you are, as if you are completely outmatched with little to no hope of victory in that battle, whether It's a battle against indwelling sin or a battle against the consequences of the sins of others or whether it's a battle against persecution or simply the battle to live faithfully and obediently for Jesus Christ in a fallen world of suffering and trial. Jesus writes to a church that finds itself in that very place. And so let us read verses 7 through 13 of Revelation chapter 3 and hear what Jesus says to that church. For what he says to that church may have particular application to us today. The word of God in Revelation 3 verse 7 through verse 13. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege and honor and responsibility that it is to gather as your people and worship you, magnify you, 
Father, we continue in that spirit of worship as we turn now to your precious word. We thank you so much for for this book that we hold in our hands. Father, we thank you that you divinely inspired it and divinely protected it throughout the ages such that we can know that what we hold in our hands to be your very breath. Open your breath to us this morning, Father. Speak to your people. Encourage and equip the church, Father, to be ready to face not only the trials of our day, but those trials that are sure to come. And Father, use your word this morning and its display of the good news of Jesus Christ to bring the hope of the gospel to those among us in this very room who stand apart from you and are not part of your family. Bring them into your family, Lord, we pray, by giving them faith in Jesus Christ by giving them the hope of the gospel as it is seen in this passage. Father, I humbly ask that you would bring your anointing on me that I might simply preach your word and then use your word, Father, to divide and conquer the flesh in us and to encourage and equip us to be ready to face whatever it is that you bring about in our present and in our future. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the sixth of seven letters in chapters two through three. We'll finish up next week with the letter to the church at Laodicea. This letter to the church in Philadelphia follows the same basic format as all of the other letters. It's uncanny how Jesus writes the same way and uses the same format in each of these letters. There's an opening in verse 7, there's a body of the letter in verses 8 through 11, and then a closing of the letter in verses 12 and 13. The opening and the closing of these letters are not just things that Jesus tags on to the beginning of a letter and the end of a letter. Sometimes we see the opening and the closing of these letters and we're tempted to skip on by them and get to the meat of what Jesus has to say to these churches in the body of the letter itself, but we do so to our own detriment because in these openings and in these closings, Jesus includes meaning that helps us to understand the very body of the letter itself. And so they're important. In this opening in verse 7, we see the same two elements that we see in the openings of all of the other letters. First of all, an identification of the audience to whom he is writing. And secondly, a self-characterization of Jesus. As he says, I am the one who is this, who is writing this letter. And so the identification of the audience here clearly is the church in this city called Philadelphia. It's the only... uh, uh, letter to these, these churches in Asia Minor that I'm aware of that has a corresponding city here in the U.S. Oh, except for Smyrna. We got Smyrna, Georgia here, don't we? We do. Philadelphia. What do we know about Philadelphia? It was a smaller city, smaller than many of the other letters to whom he writes in chapters 2 and 3. It was on a trade route, but it was at the end of a trade route. And so though it, it, it had trade in the city, it was much less that we see it like in the likes of Sardis and Smyrna and Ephesus and Thyatira. So it was a smaller city. 
Like the other cities in Asia Minor, it included an element of pagan worship. It was the center for the worship of the Roman god Dionysus, or Dionysus, the Roman god of wine. But the city was known not so much for its pagan idolatry as some of the other cities in Asia Minor were. This city, the city of Philadelphia, was, was known much more for its prominent Jewish population. It had a large Jewish population in this city. And this Jewish population in Philadelphia plays prominently in this letter that Jesus writes to this church in Philadelphia, as we'll see. Like in the city of Smyrna, the primary opposition that the church in this city faces is not the opposition of the pagan idolaters that are going to the temple, but it is the opposition of the Jews in town that is their primary opposition. One other interesting note about this city is that Philadelphia was located on a fault line, and as a result of it, they experienced lots of earthquake activity over time. In fact, in A.D. 17, there was a massive earthquake that nearly leveled the city. Often, the people would have to seek shelter outside of the city because of the earthquake activity in town, and the, and, the, and the temples and the buildings would crumble and fall, and they'd have to seek shelter elsewhere. And so earthquakes were not uncommon to the Philadelphians. So that is the audience that he writes to. Now, what is, how does Jesus characterize himself as he begins this letter? He characterizes himself in three ways. First, he calls himself the Holy One. Here he's referring to his own deity. Normally in Scripture, it is Yahweh. It is God himself, God the Father, who is referred to as holy. And here Jesus refers to himself as the Holy One. This is Jesus saying, in essence, I am God. He also refers to himself as the true one. This is, this is Jesus referring to his faithfulness, that he can be counted on. He, he is true, like something solid that you hold on to when you're falling. When you're weak and you're powerless and you're falling, you need something strong and stable and immovable to hold on to. And Jesus says, I am the true one. When you hold on to me, I am solid and I am secure. I won't falter. We can count on him to be steadfast and immovable. So there's something going on in this city and in this church in particular where they need to be reminded that Jesus is the Holy One, He's God, and that He is true. No matter what's going on, He'll be stable for them. He also refers to Himself as the one who has the keys of David, and that He opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one will open. This is nearly a direct quote from the prophet Isaiah, where a guy named Eliakim, in Isaiah chapter 22, a guy, a guy named Eliakim is given the keys of the city of David. And it was literally a large key, it was a symbolic key, but it was a large key that was affixed to his shoulder, and it was symbolic of his authority and his ability to grant and restrict access to the city of David. 
Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, God says to them through the prophet, And I will place on his shoulder, that is Eliakim's shoulder, the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So in this sense, Eliakim is seen as a type of Christ, a prefiguring of the Messiah. As Jesus now says in Revelation, I have the key of David. And as such, I open the door. And when I open, no one will shut. And when I shut the door, no one will open because I have the key. There in Isaiah, Isaiah was talking about Eliakim's authority to grant access to the city. And here in Revelation, Jesus is talking about his authority to grant access to the new Jerusalem, the new city coming from heaven. In other words, Jesus says here, as he says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. I have the keys to heaven. I have the keys to eternal life. I have the keys to the new Jerusalem. And when I open it, no one shuts it. When I shut it, no one will open it. So for some reason, the church in Philadelphia needed to be reminded that Jesus Christ alone is the one who has the authority and the ability to grant access to heaven, access to eternal life, the new Jerusalem. Apparently the believers in this church were struggling or on the verge of struggling with whether or not God had left them or that God had forgotten them. Or that maybe God had rejected them as his people. So what was happening in this city? What was going on in this church that was causing them to struggle with doubts like this? To where they needed to be reminded that, no, Jesus Christ alone has the authority and the ability to grant access to eternal life. So the answer to those questions begin to take shape as we move now to the body of the letter in verses 8 through 11. Here we'll find a word of encouragement, two promises, and an exhortation to the church. So first, a word of encouragement. This by far is the most encouraging letter of all the letters that we find from Jesus in chapters 2 and 3. There's no rebuke. There's no accusation of wrongdoing. There's no warnings of judgment, no promise of suffering, just a commendation of their works and multiple promises as reward. He begins by saying, I know your works. In other words, I've seen you. I've watched you. And we recall the vision in chapter 1 of Jesus with the eyes of flaming fire that symbolize for us that Jesus not only sees our actions, but he sees through our actions, through the words that come out of our mouth and into our heart. He sees our very motives. And Jesus says, I see you, church, in Philadelphia. I've watched you. I've seen not just what you've done, I've seen not just your behavior, but I've seen your heart. I've seen your motives. I've seen to the very core of what drives you. And what does he say about that? He says, behold, 
That word means look. We see it repeated over and over in this passage. Jesus wants them to look. He wants them to behold. He wants them to see what he has done for them. And what has he done for them? Particularly here, he has set before them, he says, an open door, which no one is able to shut. So again, he reminds them that he's the one who has the keys of David, and he's the one who opens the door to the kingdom of heaven. And he tells this church that he's the one who set this open door before them. He's the one who's done, who's done this. They haven't done this for themselves. Nobody else has done this for them. That he alone, because he has the keys, he has set before them this open door. He goes on in, with his commendation of this church by saying, still in verse 8 here, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What does Jesus mean when he says you have but little power? Well, remember, this is not a rebuke of them. This whole letter is positive in its tone. It's a commendation of them. So he's not saying you have little spiritual power, because that would make very little sense, especially with what comes after this, and yet you have not denied my name and you have kept my word. No, instead, he's referring here to the fact that this church is literally little and small. It's seemingly insignificant in the city of Philadelphia. It's a small church of relatively few believers, of relative little consequence in the city. It had very little influence in the city, so this was not a megachurch with a celebrity pastor like Paul or Peter or James. Now, this is a small church with very little power, very little influence on the culture around it, probably filled with folks who had been kicked out of the synagogue there and were now experiencing persecution at the hands of the prominent Jewish population in town. But Jesus says to them, and yet you have kept my word, And you have not denied my name. Jesus says you're small. And you have but little power. But that doesn't make any difference. That's not what matters. What matters is that you have remained faithful. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name even though the persecution at times has been fierce in town. You, little church, you've been faithful. Church, I think we can identify, right, with this little church in the city of Philadelphia. Here at New Branch, we have 48 covenant family members, families, 48 covenant families, And we love and are grateful for each and every one of them. Those 48 covenant families comprise 177 souls, each one precious in God's sight. And each one that the elders take the responsibility of shepherding seriously, each one a soul that we will have to answer for one day. But let's face it, we're a small church. Average attendance without the pandemic is about 150. 
Let's just be honest. You are part of a church that has but little power, like this church in Philadelphia. You're part of a church that doesn't have a celebrity pastor. That's quite obvious. (laughs) When we have a week of serving, as we're about to do with Serve 2021 this week, I'm sure that the average person in our community, unless they are directly impacted by one of our projects, they won't even notice. When a megachurch has a community outreach, it's hard not to notice. But when a small little church like this has a community outreach, hardly anyone takes notice. We have very little influence on the surrounding culture around us, and so I think we can identify with this small, <clears throat> small church in Philadelphia that has but little power. And so it's encouraging here to hear when Jesus says, I know your works. I've seen you. I've watched you. I know that you are a small little church. I know that you have but little power. And yet, you have remained faithful. He commends them for their faithfulness. That's encouraging to us. Because it reminds us of what is most important. And it reminds us of what Jesus expects from us. He doesn't expect us to be the latest mega church with a big building and a big budget and a celebrity pastor. What he expects from us is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Faithfulness to the task that he's put in front of us. Faithfulness to the mission that he's laid before us. To play our part in making disciples of all nations for the glory of God. That's what he expects of us. Faithfulness to that task, to that calling. He expects us to be faithful. But you know, sometimes it's very easy in the church world to equate faithfulness with fruitfulness. But just because you have one doesn't mean that you are going to see the other. What Jesus expects from us is faithfulness. Fruitfulness is up to him. He's the one who has the keys. He's the one who opens the door that no one will shut and shuts the door that no one will open. And so fruitfulness is up to him. That's his job. What he wants from us is faithfulness. To keep his word. To not deny that we know him. To be faithful to the task and mission that he has given to us. And as he will mention later, to patiently endure no matter how hard the trials get. Faithfulness. When we get to heaven, church, Jesus will not say to us, well done, good and successful servant. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so as a church, let us be encouraged by Jesus' reminder here that a small church with, what, with what, but little power can be faithful just as this church was. Now, don't get me wrong, we're not against church growth. We're not against growing here at New Branch. We want to grow. And we want to grow primarily through conversion, through seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We want to grow so that we can continue to send. We want to grow, but we also want to grow deeper in our walk with Jesus. 
We want to grow more obedient. We want to grow more faithful to him. We want to hear those words one day, well done, good and faithful servant. And so, like the church in Philadelphia, may we always be known for keeping his word and not denying that we know him, always remaining faithful to the mission that he's placed in front of us, the task he's placed in front of us. And may we endure patiently, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how rough the road becomes, may we endure patiently like this church. May we be commended for those things like this church was. So that's the word of encouragement. Then Jesus gives them two promises. First, there's the promise of vindication in verse 9, and then a promise of protection in verse 10. Look with me first at verse 9. Jesus says, Behold, again, look. Wants them to see something here. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. What's this all about? What's the, what's the deal with this picture that Jesus gives the Apostle John to write down in this letter to the church in Philadelphia that there's coming a day when these Jews in town are going to come and bow down at your feet? What's going on here? Well, Jesus is drawing from Old Testament prophecy here. In the Old Testament, Israel looked forward to a day when Israel would be restored to her former glory. They looked forward to the restoration of Israel. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3, God says to Israel through the prophet Isaiah this, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is a picture of Israel in her future glory at the end of the age. But listen to what God says in verse 14 of that chapter. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And listen to this. And all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. So, so in her future glory, Israel looked forward to the vindication of God as those who despised Israel would one day come down and bow at her feet. But now look at how Jesus in Revelation 3 turns that vindication on its head. Now, those who say that they are Jews, those who say that they are the children of Abraham, they will be the ones who now will come down, come and bow down to the feet of whom? The church. And why? Because those who say they are Jews, as Jesus says, those who say that they are Israel are not the true Israel. Because they deny Christ. They deny Jesus as the Messiah. And so Jesus says they're called the synagogue of Satan, just as he calls them in the letter to the church in Smyrna. They're not the true Israel, he says. And so we learn here that, that according to Jesus, not all Israel is Israel. We've heard that elsewhere, haven't we? 
Paul says in Romans chapter 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. On the surface, that makes no sense. Who's Israel? We just came out of it, Genesis. It's Jacob, right? Not all who are descended from Jacob belong to Jacob. Huh? Not all who are descended from Israel are part of Israel? He says, not all who are, are, who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Again, it doesn't make sense on the surface. Not all who are children of Abraham, they're not all children of Abraham because of, they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Remember, there were two sons. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh, children by birth, who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the offspring. The offspring of what? The offspring of Abraham, the true Israel. So not all Israel is Israel. Jesus tells us that there is an ethnic Israel that is entered into by birth, and there is a spiritual Israel that is entered into by faith. And not all of ethnic Israel is part of spiritual Israel. Paul puts it this way to the Galatians. Galatians 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, in other words, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you've trusted in Christ as your only hope to be rescued from your sin, and so you've taken the bread and the juice, if that's you, if you you belong to Christ, then what? He says, then you, and who's he speaking to? He's speaking to a primarily Gentile church in Galatia. Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the true Israel is the Israel of faith. The spiritual Israel. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, the church. And so Jesus says that this prophecy of Isaiah 60 where Israel is looking forward to this time when she will be vindicated by her enemies coming down and bowing at her feet will be fulfilled at least in part when this synagogue of Satan, these in Philadelphia who say that they are the children of Abraham but are not, they lie about that. They're not the children of Abraham. They're not the children of the promise because they have rejected the one who was promised, Christ. This prophecy in Isaiah 60 will be fulfilled when these who say that they are the children of Abraham but are not are the ones to come and bow down at the feet of those who have recognized that Jesus is king and they have professed faith in him as Lord. Jesus will vindicate his true people, the true Israel, the church by causing the Jews to come and bow down before your feet. And Jesus says, they will learn that I have loved you. The picture here is not of the Jews coming and bowing down and worshiping the church, but instead recognizing that the God of the church, the Savior of the church, the Redeemer of the church, Jesus Christ, is the Messiah recognizing finally and ultimately that he is the king of kings and the king of the Jews. Some see here a picture of Jews coming to faith. I don't see that in this passage myself. 
Perhaps some of them who come and bow down at the feet of the church will be professing faith in Christ. But remember, this is a, this is a promise to the church in Philadelphia, but it's a pronouncement of woe upon the Jews who reject Christ. That there is coming a day when they will see with open eyes that he whom they have rejected is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Like what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The vindication of spiritual Israel is the vindication of the church. And our vindication, hear me on this, our vindication will not be based on how big a church we are. It won't be based on how, how much influence we have in the community. Our vindication won't be because we won a court battle for religious liberty. Our vindication won't be because we somehow were able to wrangle enough political weight to pass and legislate enough morality. No. Our vindication will come when Jesus returns in glory and he is recognized as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Our vindication will not be based on who we are or what we have done. Our vindication will be based on the life, death, resurrection, and then return of Jesus in glory. That's what our vindication will be based on. And then the world, world will learn that though God loves the world, God loves the church uniquely and distinctly because he died for her. So there's a promise of vindication. And then there's a promise of protection in verse 10. In verse 10, Jesus promises this little church with these words, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So the big question for this verse is, what is this hour of trial that is coming? Bible scholars have debated over this for hundreds of years. Some contend that what he's referring to here is kind of a localized time of trial that's going to occur in the present time of this church in Philadelphia. That it's a, a localized time of tribulation, not a global time of tribulation. It's kind of like the, the tribulation that was promised to the church in Smyrna in chapter 2 when what was promised to them was, uh, he says, what's coming is 10 days of tribulation. It was a localized tribulation for that area of Asia Minor. Some say that's what's this, what this is referring to. But in order for that to be the correct understanding, we've, we've got to do some workarounds here that I think are hard to overcome. In order for that to be the correct understanding, that it's a localized tribulation, the phrase the whole world there has to be understood as something other than the whole world. It has to be understood as the world there around the city of Philadelphia and the surrounding region perhaps. And while there is biblical precedent for us to consider that possibility in Scripture, I don't find that argument convincing. Additionally, the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, which as we walk through Revelation, will always refer to the totality of unbelievers who 
are under judgment and who are following the Antichrist and all of that. That's always what that refers to. Here, it must refer to something else. It must refer only to the believers in and around the area of Philadelphia. And then finally, in order for us to understand this, to be referring to a localized tribulation of believers, the very next verse, verse 11, where Jesus says, I am coming soon, can't refer to the second coming of Christ. It must instead refer to perhaps the, the Spirit of God, Jesus sending the Spirit of God to protect these churches during this time of trial. Now, that is very encouraging. That, that as a promise, if that's what that means, that's very encouraging. It means that, that Jesus sends his Spirit to protect the church spiritually in some way during our present times of trial. And, and while that is certainly is uh, uh, true doctrinally and biblically, we know that Jesus does do that. And while that is a legitimate interpretation, I ultimately don't find it convincing enough. Instead, I think a more natural reading of verse 10 here leads us to conclude that Jesus is referring here to a future time of global trial and tribulation on the earth such has, as has never been experienced before in the history of the earth. And that's what I believe as we continue to go through Revelation, we will see explained in the tribulation and the judgments of the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls as we unpack those verses. We'll see them talking about a future time of trial and tribulation that is coming on the whole earth. Trial and tribulation that will occur prior to the second coming of Christ in glory. But the point here is that Jesus promises these believers in this church in Philadelphia that he's going to keep them from this hour of trial. There's going to be some sort of protection for the church during this time. But he doesn't refer here to any kind to them being absent from this um, time of suffering and trial and tribulation, but instead that they will be protected through it. Nowhere in Revelation do we see that believers will be spared from the suffering that is to come, or that they will somehow be absent from the suffering that will be poured out. Instead, we're told over and over and over again that the church will be protected through it. And so this protection can't mean physical protection. Instead, it must mean some sort of spiritual protection. In the coming months, as we progress through some of the middle chapters of the book of Revelation, we'll discover that the tribulation can be divided into two aspects. First, there is the suffering of the church at the hand of the Antichrist, the persecution of the church at the hand of the Antichrist, what some might call the, the wrath of Satan. And during this time, friend, there will be many believers who are martyred. But just because a Christian is martyred, which means killed for their faith, doesn't mean that they're not spiritually protected. Every time Satan kills one of God's faithful servants, his power is decreased, not God's. And so even during that pouring out of the wrath of Satan, we will see the spiritual protection of the church. And then the other aspect of the tribulation will be the pouring out of the wrath of God. 
And this is where unbelievers are exposed for their lack of faith in Christ and their willingness to follow voluntarily the Antichrist and serve the Antichrist. And during this time, we're told that believers will be marked and believers will be sealed and somehow spiritually protected through that time. I believe this is what Jesus is promising the church in Philadelphia. For the first time, we get a taste of the fun stuff that's to come, right? For the first time, we see Jesus hinting at this promise of coming times of trial and tribulation that's coming in the end times. And there's coming for them this time of trial. But he says, because they have endured patiently during their present persecution and trial at the hands of the the Jewish population in town, because they've endured patiently during that, Jesus will protect them spiritually in the persecution that is coming. And of course, the, the good news here is that the promise of spiritual protection in the midst of suffering and persecution is not just a promise for the church in Philadelphia, it's a promise for the church today. It's a promise for us. It's a promise that we can lay claim to as well. As long as we are those who endure, who endure patiently during the present time of trial that we're under. So are you? Are you enduring patiently the present time of trial? The final part of the body of the letter is an exhortation in verse 11. Jesus says, I am coming soon, which I believe most naturally refers to his return in glory, his second coming. And then he says, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast. This is an imperative verb. This is the only imperative verb in this letter to the church in Philadelphia. So it's a command to hold fast. To hold fast what you have. Jesus gave the same command to the church in Thyatira at the end of chapter 2. When we covered that, we, we noted that what we have is all that God has given to us in Christ. What we have is Jesus. What we have is his gospel and his bride, the church. And so this is an exhortation to, to cling to Christ, to cling to the hope of the gospel, and to cling to the help of the church. So that, what? So that no one may seize your crown. I was referring here to the crown of life as Athletes ran in a race in that day. When they finished, they wouldn't get a trophy. They would get a crown. They'd get a wreath that was put on their heads. It was a symbol of victory. And so this crown that he's referring to, this crown of life, is a reward that is given to those who do endure patiently to the end. To remain faithful in the midst of persecution. As James says in James 1 verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Church, there is a, there's a crown that is promised to us who are in Christ. There's a crown that awaits us if we would only remain steadfast and faithful in the midst of trials and persecution and the persecution to come. So the exhortation is cling to Christ. Cling to the hope of the gospel. Cling to the help of the church so that no one may seize your crown. 
And then as we close this letter, we see the same two elements in the closing as we've seen in all of the other letters. First, there is a promise to the one who conquers, and then there is a reminder that these promises are not just for the church in Philadelphia, they are for all the churches. As he says in verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, not just that church. But I want us to look closer at this promise to the one who conquers in verse 12. Jesus tells John to write, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. I see in this verse a wonderful promise of assurance, particularly the assurance of the security, the eternal security of the believer. In the earthquake-ridden city of Philadelphia, pillars would crumble and temples would fall. But friend, in the New Jerusalem, that'll not be the case. Their pillars will be a permanent fixture in the New Jerusalem. They will be strong and they will be sturdy and they will never crumble or fall. And Jesus says to the believers in this church, I will make you a temple I will make you a pillar in the temple of God. I will make you a permanent fixture in my future kingdom. And not only that, he says, I will write my name on you. I will write on you three names. First, I will write the name of my God, Yahweh, the Lord. I will write the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And I will write on him my own new name. And this writing of these names on us displays who we belong to. My sons carry the name Rucker on them. Not literally. They didn't get tattoos or anything. But figuratively, they are Ruckers. They, that name displays them as carrying on my name, just as I carried on my father's name. It displays who they are and who they belong to. Just as I represent the name of my father, they represent my name. The name serves to display that they are my sons and I am their father. In the same way, the names that will be written on us when we get home will display that we are the people of God, that we belong to him that we are his sons and daughters, and that he is our father. Jesus says, I'm going to write those names on you who conquer. May we be reminded that the book of Revelation is written to help the church be a church of conquerors. Jesus knows that there is a battle that's coming, and he wants his bride to be ready for this battle. So he wants them to be conquerors in this battle, not to be conquered. The coming battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against political rivals. It's not against those with whom we disagree on important issues of morality. The battle, as Paul tells the Ephesians, is not against flesh and blood. 
but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who we battle against today, and that's who we're going to battle against one day, church. And so Jesus gives these visions to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos and has them write them down in a book in order to equip the church of that day and this day to be ready when that battle comes, when that battle gets here. And so we should ask ourselves in closing, are we growing in the things for which Jesus commended this church? Are you keeping his word, reading it, knowing it, but obeying it, living it out, believing what it says? Are you resisting the temptation to deny his name, or are you like Peter was on the night of Jesus' arrest, tempted to deny that you know him in your circles in life? Are you enduring patiently in this battle? And are you holding fast what you have? Clinging to Christ. Clinging to the hope of the gospel and the help of the church. Are you a conqueror? You know, the difference between the one who conquers and the one who doesn't conquer is not a matter of trying harder to be a better Christian. It's not it. That would be the case if we were engaged in this battle on our own and it were up to our own merits to engage in this battle. No, the conqueror is the one who surrenders to Christ. The conqueror is the one who stops placing their faith in themselves to make themselves right before God and instead admits that they cannot make themselves right before God but recognizes that Jesus lived the perfect righteous life in our place and died in our place on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. The conqueror is the one who trusts in Christ alone to rescue us from our deserved punishment because of our rebellion against the king. That's who the conqueror is, the one who yields his life, her life to him. And trust in the finished work of the cross as their only hope. Before that person, before that person, Christ has set an open door and no one can shut it. It's secure. That person will persevere to the end because Christ will never leave you and Christ will never forsake you and Christ will engage in these battles on your behalf. And he will ensure that you make it. He will ensure that you persevere to the end. And friends, part of the means that he uses to bring about your perseverance are these exhortations. Keep his word. Don't deny that you know him. Endure patiently to the end and cling to Christ and cling to the hope of the gospel and the help of the church. Friend, if you don't have those things to hold fast to, And perhaps today is the day of your salvation. It's not about walking an aisle, raising a hand, hooting a holler. It's about professing faith in Jesus 
in the quietness of your heart, recognizing that you could never make yourself acceptable to God. But that's why God sent his son, his perfect, spotless lamb, to live a perfect life and to die a sinless death in the place of sinners. If that describes you, will you this morning stop trying to earn your way to him and place your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this very, very encouraging passage of Scripture where we see your Son as the sovereign Redeemer of the universe, the Savior of sinners, been to look at a little church in Asia Minor who's small, doesn't have much power, doesn't have much influence. And we see him graciously, confidently commend them for their faithfulness. God, would you make us that kind of church? Would you make us that kind of people? Father, whether you cause us to grow by leaps and bounds or whether, Father, we... um, We don't grow much at all. God, would you cause us to be faithful? Faithful to keep your word, to be a people of your word, to never deny that we know you in every and any circumstance in which we have the opportunity to be a witness for Jesus. Lord, let us not shrink back from that as Peter did on that night, but may may we say, yes, we know him, and I want to tell you about him. May we patiently endure. Father, help us to endure and to endure patiently no matter the trials that come at us in life. God, would you give us the strength and the hope to cling to Christ, to cling to the gospel, and to remain in a place of needful hope on the help that the church provides. Father, may you do this so that you would be glorified through us, so that we would be found as faithful, so we would receive that crown of life and then take it off and lay it at your feet. Ultimately, we ask that you would do this for your glory, not ours. We pray that you would use us in the time that we have left for your glory. And Father, we pray for those in this very room that don't know you. Maybe they've been to church their whole life. Maybe this is their first time back in quite a while. But they've been trying to earn your favor by trying to be a good person and trying to be a good Christian. Lord, we pray that your word would show them this morning the folly of that effort and the dead end of that effort. But in that next breath, Lord, would you reveal to them the glorious hope of the gospel that you sent Jesus Christ for just such people. Father, I thank you so much for the grace that you have extended to me when I was 17 years old and bought me out of a life of self-focus and self-centeredness.
And I thank you for the grace that you continue to extend to me each and every day. Thank you for the grace that you show my brothers and sisters in this church. God, I ask that you would show that grace to that person who calls out to you in faith this morning. Bring them across that line of faith. Move them from death to life. Give them a new heart to trust in Jesus. Remake them as a worshiper of you. And may you receive glory from them from this day until you return. We pray this in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.